I haven't done this research on my own, but someone I trust shared with me uh, that Jesus was asked like roughly 180 questions in the Gospels. Jesus himself asked roughly 360 questions in response. He only gave three direct answers. Of those 180 or so questions, he answered three of them directly, and the question that Beth mentioned, teach us how to pray, is one of those. So we're gonna talk about that today. We're gonna talk about the Lord's Prayer. We'll be in Matthew chapter six, if you'd like to follow along, if you wanna turn in your pew Bibles or in your personal Bible. Uh, This comes in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew six. I'm gonna start in verse five. It says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. So what is their reward? What do they want? To to be seen, to be praised because they're so holy, they're so good. He's saying, okay, they they got what they wanted. They're seen. But but that's all they get, (laughs) right? So he goes on. He says, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who is unseen. And then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Uh, N.T. Wright says this about the section I just read. He says, who you are in private is who you really are. I mean, that... That's like a sermon in and of itself, right? (laughs) Uh, We'll actually talk about that all this fall. We're gonna talk about our identity in Christ. But he says, who you are in private is who you really are. So go there to that private place, be who you really are, and talk to your father. You don't have to make a song and dance about it. And indeed, the fewer people that know you're doing it, the better. You don't have to mouth pious phrases. In fact, you might find that there are forms of words which can be helpful, a framework as a starting point, which is what we've been talking about the past few weeks, using the Psalms as a framework, as a starting point, letting them be our words as we develop and learn our own prayer language. And we're about to read the framework that Jesus gives to his disciples. But Wright continues, he says this, he says, the point is to do your business with God. Jesus doesn't say what kind of reward we should expect, and that too is part of the point because simply knowing God better is the reward. He says, but there may be other things as well, but you never know until you try. What's clear is that he is inviting his followers into a life where the inside and the outside match perfectly, where both are focused on the God who sees in secret. So we have three weeks left in the summer series on prayer. We've been looking at formal prayers. We've been looking at informal conversations between God and his people throughout the scripture. We've been trying to see how those might help to guide our conversations with God. Uh, In a minute, we're gonna read Jesus's prayer, the form of prayer that Jesus offers to his disciples. Next week, we'll hear Jesus's personal prayer, his beautiful high priestly prayer from John 17. And then we're gonna read about Paul's prayer uh, for the church in Ephesians Uh, chapter three. I always tell our staff, um, one of the difficult things about communication is that the communicator is only in control of about 50% of the process. 
right? Like I'm only in control of what I say and the way I say it. I have no control over what you hear, how you hear it, or I mean, if you were listening at all, right? (laughs) If you are listening, like you can't fully know my heart. You don't know what's on my mind. You don't know my purpose. You don't know my intention. You, you might interpret what I say one way when what I meant was something completely different. And that is the messy reality of person-to-person communication. We deal with that all the time, right? That's why there's so much drama in our lives. The good news is that prayer is very different. And this part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching his disciples, just be who you are. You don't need to worry about what others think. Find a place where it can just be you and God and then just talk. And you don't need to even think about, you don't need to worry how the listener hears or receives your prayer because it's God and God is not like us. God knows your heart. He knows our intentions. He knows where we're coming from and he can perfectly understand and receive exactly what we mean to say even if we don't always say it the right way. Right, that's really good news. So back to the text, Matthew 6, verse 9. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as always, we pray that you would take these scriptures as they're read, that you would take the gospel being proclaimed and that you would use it to transform us, that it would not just be information, it would be transformation, making us not just better versions of ourselves, but more and more like you. So open our eyes, our minds, our ears, our hearts that we can receive what you have for us today when we leave this place, use our entire self to be a people who will proclaim this good news, be your hands and feet in the world, everywhere we go. We pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. All right, so school just started back. You guys ready to learn something today? Ready to do a little Bible study? It's gonna get a little nerdy up in here. You guys good with that? All right, so uh, I was reading a book uh, the past week uh, on the Lord's Prayer by a pastor. He was actually one of my professors uh, just for one short class. Uh, his name was Daryl Johnson, and he wrote this book called 57 Words That Changed the World. In the, in the Greek version of the Lord's Prayer, it's 57 words. Uh, it's a great book, but I just wanna share with you two points that I think are just really, really insightful. Um, it led me to title this sermon, The Grammar of Prayer, only to later realize like yesterday morning that we're not actually talking about grammar today, we're talking about literary structure. You excited? Yeah. Um, (laughs) I didn't realize if we titled it the literary structure of prayer, you know, it probably wouldn't have been as catchy. So, uh, but but let me show you what I mean. This is actually pretty fascinating. Um, There's this literary device that's really common, not only in scripture, but in ancient Eastern literature in general. Um, You find it in the Iliad, you find it in the Odyssey. Sometimes there are modern poets that'll use this technique, but they use it for a different reason. Um, And it's called a chiasm or chiastic structure. Now, if you're already familiar, just bear with me for a minute. Um, uh, 
But imagine that I have, I'm coming to communicate something. I have a thesis, I have a main idea that I wanna get across. Uh, Imagine I also have three points, like three arguments with illustrations and evidence to support that main idea. How am I probably gonna communicate this? How was I taught to communicate this, right? I'm gonna start with my thesis. Then I'm gonna give you point one with illustrations, point two with illustrations, point three with illustrations. And then as I conclude, what am I gonna tell you again? My thesis, I'm gonna tell you my main idea again, right? That's how we communicate. Now, of those three points, which one am I probably gonna put last? The strongest one, right? Sometimes you put that one first, but usually last because it's the one people remember. Where am I gonna put my weakest point? Usually you put it in the middle, you make it second, right? Because uh, we typically put it there because it's the most likely to be forgotten in our culture, which just means that in about five minutes you guys are free to fall asleep because you're probably gonna forget that anyway. Um, But that's how we think and that's how we communicate in Western culture. Um, In most of our content here, we drop language about the gospel, the core of the gospel, who Jesus is, what he does. We typically put that at or near the end of our messages because everything else that's been said, it only makes sense in light of that good news. This is how Western minds think and process information. So as far as we can tell, it seems to be an effective way for us to communicate. But it's not the same with literature from the ancient East. That's not how they thought, that's not how they wrote. And that's the context from which the Bible was written. So Eastern literature will use these things called chiastic structures, chiasms, and I'm convinced that if we just take a minute and understand what it is and how it works, we're gonna better understand not only how to pray the Lord's Prayer, we're gonna better understand the main idea of all of Jesus' teachings throughout the gospel. All right, so you guys in? You with me? Give me just a minute, we'll get through it. So uh, back to our main idea, three supporting points. In a chiasm, it's gonna look something like this, and I'm just gonna use the screens. Point one, we're gonna call it A. We'll use the letter A for point number one. And I'm just gonna throw the point out there really quick, right? Then I'm gonna go right on to point number two, and that's signified by the letter B. And then I'm gonna go directly into point three. We'll signify that with the letter C. Now, along with each of those points, Like I mentioned a minute ago, you would expect to find some illustrations, right? You expect to find some paragraphs that work out the implication of those points before I move on to the next, right? And this is where chiasms are different. In a chiastic structure, I will quickly lay out all three points, one after the other, and then I'm gonna come back to them in reverse order. (laughs) After I simply state my third point, then I'm gonna come back and support or illustrate my third point. And when we do these little uh, diagrams, we use C prime or C with an apostrophe next to it. And then after supporting and illustrating point three, I go to point two. And then I go on to point number one. Okay, are you fascinated? <laughs> okay, I mean, okay. Okay, this is fascinating, but, but watch this. This is, this is where the magic of chiastic literature comes in. Um, I don't put my thesis at the beginning And I don't put my thesis at the end. I put it right in the middle. The thesis, the point of the entire thing is right there, right in the heart of the writing itself. So it ultimately is gonna look something like this. And Brian, there's gonna be a lot of text up on the screen. So I make my three points. I lay my thesis out right in the middle. And then I go backwards and put the supporting illustrations and evidence to further my points. So watch this. You start the Lord's Prayer with the address, our Father in heaven. And then a series of petitions or requests that go like this. Father, make your name holy. 
set apart. Brian, read it with me, it's good. Then next point, bring your kingdom. And then my next point, do your will. And then I go and support and illustrate those points. Give us our daily bread. Forgive our debts as we forgive. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I'll show you more about that in just a second. But what did I leave out? What's right in the middle, right between those first three petitions about God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will, just before these petitions about providing for our needs, forgiving us, and keeping God's testing from becoming temptation, what goes right in the middle? The thesis and the main idea on earth as it is in heaven. So Daryl Johnson argues that this is the point of the Lord's prayer, that everything be on earth as it is in heaven. Everything. And not only is that phrase at the chiastic or the theological center of the Lord's prayer, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew covers three chapters, Matthew five through seven. If you lay it out, y'all, it's one big chiasm. And guess what's at the center of the Sermon on the Mount? The Lord's Prayer. So he goes as far as to say, if on heaven as it is in earth, on earth as it is in heaven, if that's the thesis or the main idea of the prayer itself, and that prayer sits at the center of the Sermon on the Mount, then the entire Sermon on the Mount can be summed up with the phrase, on earth as it is in heaven. So listen, this isn't just interesting information for nerds, right? Like, like I'm telling you, this is really practical insight. Because if on earth as it is in heaven is the thesis of the Sermon on the Mount, if it's the theological center of the Lord's Prayer, then you can not only reasonably add that phrase to each section within the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus teaches, you are the salt and the light, right? As, we, as he goes through each of those teachings, you can add on earth as it is in heaven, but you can add that little phrase to each line of the Lord's Prayer. Which means that we could effectively pray the Lord's Prayer like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name on earth because that's the way things are in heaven. The little P, you read, come on. Your kingdom come on earth because that's the way things are in heaven. Your will be done on earth because that's the way things are in heaven. Give us today our daily bread on earth because that's the way things are in heaven. Forgive us as we forgive on earth, because that's the way things are in heaven. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. On earth, because that's the way things are in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. But look, there's more to it. Look at the way the points are illustrated. I told you the first point, Father, make your name holy or set apart. The illustration, the support that comes at the end, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Do you know what the evil one's greatest desire is? It is not to make you suffer. It's to make you doubt that God is good. It's to make you question whether God is actually holy. It's to make us think that we can be our own gods. That's exactly what the serpent did in the garden. What did he say? Did God really say? Like, can you really trust what God said? Oh, and by the way, what he didn't tell you is that if you eat from this fruit, you're gonna be just like him. He's, he's no different from you. That's exactly what the serpent did in the garden. Make you doubt that God is holy. It's exactly what he's doing today in my heart. He's doing it in yours. He's doing it in the heart of our culture. Make them doubt that God is good. Make them question God's holiness. Like when sickness hits, financial trouble, relational drama, 
what am I gonna ask? How can a good God allow me to go through something like this? And listen, that question itself is either a test that's gonna, be ref- that's gonna refine us, that's gonna make us stronger, or it's gonna become a temptation that's gonna drive a wedge between me and God altogether. Because that's what evil does. It takes what God intends for our good and perverts it, twists it. So Father, deliver us. God, help me keep those tests in this life, which you allow in order to shape and mold me, keep those tests from becoming the temptations of the evil one. And then point two, Father, bring your kingdom. Followed later by forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgiveness is the means by which God's kingdom comes in the life of an individual. It's the means by which, if we want to quote Handel's Messiah, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord. That's from Handel's Messiah, right? Okay, good. (laughs) Forgiveness is the way this happens. And then our third point, Father, your will be done. Give us our daily bread. Give us what we need for today because it's the Father's will to provide for his children. And he gives us what we need for today so that I can let go of yesterday's shame and guilt and regret and I cannot worry about tomorrow's anxieties. I can live in this moment that he's given me and I can do it with him. Y'all listen, I, I think this is important because it's so easy to just read scripture quickly or maybe to just focus on one or two words But so often when we read scripture, I'm telling you, we are missing the forest for the trees. Like I'm convinced, in his wisdom, God chose not to give us scripture in English in 2023. You know what I mean? Like that's not how he revealed his word to us. He did it a a long time ago using two ancient languages in a part of the world that specifically looked for and processed information in a particular way. God chose that time and that place and those languages and that way of thinking to give his word to us. And I'm convinced he did it for a reason because the beauty of scripture is that every passage we read, there is so much more going on than we realize. And what he's inviting us into is not to receive some information and go on to the next point. He's inviting us to wrestle. He's inviting us into a lifelong conversation. I asked my friend Karen G, many of you know Karen, I asked her about this literary structure. Her PhD is in English, so I just wanted to make sure that I got this right. She said, yeah, for the most part, which, you know, from a PhD, I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> uh, but she also said this, and I think she just meant it like as a passing comment, but it's brilliant. She said, maybe the Jewish mind worked differently. She said, I think for them, literature was like a puzzle to be investigated, secrets were to be found, and when you found them, you were to delight in them. Like what if we approached our relationship with God that way? Our prayers, our reading of the scripture. Yeah, it's confusing, it's kind of a puzzle, we need to investigate it, but when we do, we will find new insights and when we find them, we will delight in them. I had a professor, he was a professor of worship and he said that all theology, all good theology will lead to worship. He said, if we are speaking rightly about God, if we are doing good theology and saying things are true about who God is and what he's done, it's gonna lead your heart to want to jump for joy and sing. There should be a joy and a delight in us, not just when we gather together to sing, but even when we sit down with scriptures because there is more there than you realize. 
Now I know for us scriptures can seem confusing and hard to navigate. It's not because God's trying to confuse us. It's because he's inviting us to work, to engage in a relationship with him even as we sit down to read, but especially when we go to that private place where we are most fully us and have a conversation with him about the ways that this world, about the ways he is making this world more and more like heaven until he comes again. Okay, so what are the implications of all this? What does this tell us about prayer, about the Sermon on the Mount? Like, what's the point? Jesus is making things on earth the way things are in heaven. Now listen, just a quick caveat. The history, human history, seems to be declining. (laughs) Fair? Things feel sometimes like they're falling apart. Fair? Scripture says that is going to happen. And it, it will get worse and worse over time. But in that place, as things are getting worse and worse, there's a people. There's a particular people who know how to take the things that are happening in the world around them and even in the midst of that, use that as an opportunity to glorify and proclaim the God who has saved us who will one day make all things new. Does that make sense? But Jesus is making things on earth the way they are in heaven. This isn't all there is, of course. One day God will make all things new, fully new. But listen to the way Revelation 21 describes when that actually happens. It says... And notice the direction. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a beautiful bride dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Things in the new creation will be the way things are in heaven forever. Just look at the direction. The holy city comes down. God's dwelling place is now among his people. He will be with us and he will be our God. That is the point of it all. Now listen, by the way, when you read the end of Revelation about God's new creation, And then you go back to the beginning and read the first part of Genesis about God's creation. Y'all, the entire Bible is built around a chiastic structure. (laughs) And at the theological center, the main idea and the thesis of the whole thing at the center of human history in this life is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And if the point of it all is for the kingdoms of this world to be invaded and conquered by the kingdom of God, the place where God's will is done, then Jesus is simply saying, make that the point of your prayers. Not just for your eternal hope, but even for right here and right now. As the world around you seems to be falling apart. Like I think there's a great temptation for us to live in this life resigned to the idea this is just the way things are. There's nothing we can do about it. Like some of you know, I'm doing a doctoral program right now. My doctoral work, I'm researching work. <laughs> like, like our productive activity in society, I'm, re- I'm researching the way that it shapes us and molds us into the person God created us to be. And as I'm doing interviews and as I'm doing the research, you wanna know what I hear so often from so many people 
who love and want to follow Jesus. I know how Jesus is calling me to live, but in my industry, in my job, if I'm gonna keep my job, I have to do things that I know that he wouldn't approve of. I hear it time and time again. It's just the way it is. We are so tempted to buy into that lie. Our relationships in this life are gonna be dramatic, y'all. We are tempted to believe that's just the way it is. There's nothing we can do about it. Our finances will be stretched. Our jobs, our work will be tedious and full of stress, not invigorating and life-giving the way that God intended. When we're having financial struggles and we're having health issues, interpersonal drama, Lord, make these things here on earth the way things are in heaven. And start doing that now until it comes to its completion forever. Begin to give us now peace in our relationships, wholeness in our health, put our finances in the right place in our lives, and now help us find meaning in our work. Help us find meaning and purpose in retirement. Teach us how to live now the way that we're gonna live forever. Y'all, I'm telling you, if you read the teaching of Jesus in the Gospels and you don't understand that that's the point, teach us how to live now the way we'll live forever, then you need to go back and read the teaching of Jesus again. That's the point. And that's the point of the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. It's the point of the prayer that we recite here each and every week. And I have to ask you, as you recite that prayer together here each and every week, have you ever thought about it like this? That's why a nerdy literary analysis can be super helpful <laughs> in giving us some new insight into something we've maybe practiced our whole life, but we never imagined how meaningful it was. All right, well, one last thing I wanna just tell you, and then I have a pract really practical suggestion for how you can pray the Lord's Prayer throughout the week. Um, and this one last thing, it actually is a grammar point, so we are talking about the grammar of prayer after all, uh, but just a quick thing about the verbs. In the Lord's Prayer, Make your name holy, your kingdom come, your will be done. Give us, forgive us, lead us not, and deliver us. Do you hear the tone of those verbs? They are powerful. And they're in grammar, they're in what we call the imperative mood. Do you know what that means? These are not requests. What are they? They're commands. And here's why this is important. Grammarians and Greek scholars will tell you that that imperative mood, it was never used by a subject talking to his superior. The force of that mood is so strong, you would never speak to your superior in that way. A subject would never use this kind of language with a superior, much less the superior of all superiors. This is bold and audacious, and Johnson reminds us it is Jesus himself who's teaching us this. It's Jesus himself who puts those verbs in that mood, and it's Jesus himself who's telling us to speak to the Father so boldly and so forcibly. All right, so homework, really practical. You guys good? You don't need to write anything down. What I'm about to walk through, uh, we've laid out on a sheet of paper, and you're gonna get a copy of this on your way out today. Um, this paper is not for you to fill out. This is meant to be a guide of what I'm gonna describe to you. Um, so this is a pattern of prayer that you can pray the Lord's Prayer each day of the week, um, and you could continue to do this week after week. Um, so basically all you need to do, um, I'm gonna do this in the imperative mood. 
All right? This isn't a request, it's a command. Go today. <laughs> uh, get a journal, get a legal pad, whatever. Just make sure it has at least seven pieces of paper. <laughs> seven pieces of paper. And on the first piece of paper, put Monday, and then write out, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, on earth as it is in heaven. That's all you write on the first part of the paper. And then make that the focus of your Monday prayer. God, make your name holy to me, for my family, for our church, for our community, for our country. Make your name holy again. And make your name holy because only you can. Let that be your Monday prayer. Pray that along with anything else you'd like to say about who God is, what God has done. And then on the rest of that sheet of paper, after you're done praying, just write down the thoughts that come to mind. Write down the things that you think of after you've said that prayer. And then every other day of the week, we're gonna take another piece. So on Tuesday, at the top, write, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And pray about God's kingdom. And then on Wednesday, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then pray about the will of God in your life. On Thursday, give us this day our daily bread on earth as it is in heaven. And pray about God's provision. What is it that you need? How has God provided for you? And reflect on it. On Friday, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. On Saturday, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then on Sunday, what do we do? We come back together as a church and we play the whole thing together in community. And then start again on Monday. <laughs> like if you wanna build up a habit of daily prayer, morning prayer, this is a great way to use the prayer Jesus taught us to get us in that habit. And it's the perfect prayer to do it. Because what we know for sure about the Lord's Prayer is that every one of these petitions, every one of these commands that Jesus teaches us to pray, every single one of them will be answered yes. His kingdom will come. His will will be done. He will give you what you need. He forgives. He doesn't lead us into temptation. He will deliver us from evil. The cross of Christ and the empty tomb are proof that God's yes has already begun. We just have to trust God with the timing as he brings it all to completion. But Jesus is teaching us that every prayer is heard and answered. Anybody familiar with uh, 90s country pop? Garth Brooks? He had this famous song, Unanswered Prayers. Just because he doesn't listen, it don't mean he don't care. I don't have time to deal with the grammar of country music, but. <laughs> and then he goes on to say, some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. And I get the sentiment, but it's not true. There are no unheard prayers and there are no unanswered prayers. So when you pray, do it boldly. Do it honestly from your truest self. Make a more intimate relationship with the Father the greatest outcome and reward from that prayer. And then trust God with the outcome and trust his timing in answering yes. Amen? Let's pray. As I was saying that, I, I think, Father, the thing that we may, we may need most right now is to trust you with the timing of 
your answers to our prayers. To trust you that as your kingdom comes and as your will is done, we don't see the whole picture. We don't know the things we don't know. But you do and you are good and you are holy. You have made a way for us to be returned and reunited with you forever. And you're even making it possible for us to navigate the chaos of this world now as a different people who can see what's happening around us and still proclaim the truth that you are good, that you are holy, and that you are the answer to every problem in this place. So help us to trust you. We do pray that the temptation to not trust you deliver us from the evil one. Don't let those things be a wedge between us, but let the test of this life draw us closer to you. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said.